invite you to open your Bible with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, as we close out this chapter and move into chapter 10, Paul is continuing to talk about this issue of how come Jews, in large, are not coming to faith, Gentiles are. And in Romans chapter 9, earlier in the first 20-some verses, he's been explaining that one of the reasons is that God has sovereignly chosen to do it this way. God gets to show mercy to whom he wants to have mercy and have compassion on whom he wants to have compassion, and that God is, uh, has prophesied this in Scripture, and Paul's been uh, quoting Old Testament Scripture throughout, and speaking of God's sovereign plan to save a remnant of Israel, but also to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. But now in, in chapter 9, verse 30 and following, he shifts gears a bit, and now he's going to talk about it in a sense from the human perspective. What's going on in uh, the Jews and the Gentiles in their hearts uh, that ex- could explain why Jews are not coming to faith and the Gentiles are. And so that's where we are this morning, Romans chapter 9. We're going to begin at verse 30 and read through 10 verse 4. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let's once again just ask the Lord's Lord's blessing. Now, oh Lord Jesus, now as we open your word, I pray that these truths, though may be familiar to us, would strike us fresh with evidence of your love as you give us this precious gift of righteousness. And and Lord, uh, Reveal to us all the ways that we continue to try to earn our way with you and all the sadness and despair and misery and pride that comes from it. And so, Lord, um, bless us um, with your spirit through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Boys and girls, I want to ask you to imagine that we were playing a game, and uh, the game is very simple. I just ask you one question, boys and girls. And if you get it right, you win a million dollars. If you get it wrong, you get a spanking and you get sent to your room. All right? So it's a pretty big deal. Uh, On a scale of 1 to 10, how badly would you like to get the answer right? I think most of you would say 10. Maybe some of you would say 11, 12. Uh, If you got it right, you would spend the rest of your life celebrating the million dollars and the fact that that you got the answer right. If you got it wrong, you'd spend the rest of your life uh, regretting the decision that you'd made. Well, boys and girls, life is a little bit like that because there is a question, one question, 
That is the single most important question in all the world. It's the single most important question for your eternal destiny. And, and that question can be asked in different ways, but the question is this, how can I, as a sinner, escape God's judgment for my sin? You could ask it this way, how can I be made right with God? What can wash away my sin? That's, that's the question. And if you get it right, you will spend eternity celebrating and rejoicing in the unimaginable glory of being in the presence of God. And if you get it wrong, you will spend eternity filled with regret in a place the Bible calls hell, which Jesus says is full of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, it, it might seem uh, maybe a little melodramatic to you to suggest that one single question could have that much significance, that much weight, that profound of ramifications, but I think we could easily illustrate the reality of such ultimate questions if we just take it from the spiritual realm for a minute and put it in the physical realm. Imagine that you were out on a, um, a, a hike all by yourself in a very remote part of the country. Um, you have no cell coverage um, and uh, you're bitten by an extremely poisonous snake. The venom will take about 15 minutes before you're dead. As I said, you don't have a phone. Uh, you can't possibly make it back to get help. Uh, the, the question at that moment is, do you have the anti-venom or do you not? And it's an ultimate question. And if you have the anti-venom, you will live. And if you don't have the anti-venom, you will die. And it's that kind of a question that we have here in the spiritual realm. realm. What, what actually can wash away your sin? What can make you right with, with God? And eternity, your eternity, depends on your answer. You see, the, the great tragedy is that while this is the very most important question that a human person could ever face, the fact is that left to ourselves, every single person will get this question wrong, consistently wrong. Now, some people will get it wrong because they just deny the existence of God altogether, and they assume that that solves the problem. I had a conversation um, a while back with a person who blithely just doesn't believe in God and therefore thinks that issues about morality and eternity just don't apply. And, uh, of course, it doesn't work that way, right? We can't undo reality by deciding not to believe in reality. Just try that with, um, with, with taxes. Or, right? Try it with gravity. Just say, I don't believe in it. And see, and see how it comes out. We don't, we don't get to undo reality by choosing not to believe in it. God exists whether we believe in him or not. That's surprising to some people. I remember having a conversation with someone once a long time ago about homosexuality. He says, well, those, you know, they don't believe in a God as though God's moral law had nothing to do with them. So it, it, it doesn't matter a whit whether they believe in God or not. God exists and his law stands. And, and that's true for every human person. But most people get the question wrong in a more innocuous way. They just simply assume that being made right with God is not that difficult. Uh, you just need to be basically a good person. Uh, they think of the moral code as a math equation, that, that you get points for doing good things and you get subtractions for doing bad things. And, and as long as at the end of the line you have 
uh, more good than bad, as long as it's a positive sum, you'll be fine. And, and that's the default human assumption. You don't have to teach people this. This is just sort of what they breathe in the air, and, and this is how they live their life. And so when you ask them, uh, you know, when you stand before God on the last day and He says, why should I let you into my heaven? People will just go right back to this. Well, I'm a, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm a basically good person. I've, and they'll start listing some of the things that they've done and some of the things that they, they haven't done. Again, no one taught them to do that. It's the default position of a fallen human heart. And it is absolutely, devastatingly the wrong answer. Romans chapter 9, as I said, through 11 actually, Paul is dealing with this great surprise of the gospel age. The, the surprise is that contrary to all expectations, Gentiles, pagans, are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And the moral people, the people who were devout, concerned about the law, were rejecting Christ and being lost. And the question that Paul is wrestling with here is, why is this happening? As I said earlier in the chapter, he's just pointing to God's sovereign ways, but now in these verses, he's pointing to the people themselves. What, how are they responding to the gospel? As you, as you read these verses, you should have the sense of, if you're the apostle Paul, you are, you're watching a train wreck in slow motion. You're, you're watching the Jewish nation, your people, your kinsmen, the people you love, your family. You're watching them move down this track that, is, that has one destination. It's, it's, a, it's a train wreck in slow motion that you just feel powerless to stop. You're, you're watching this incredible tragedy unfold slowly, step by step, frame by frame. That, that has to be Paul's experience as he's, as he's watching the Jewish nation destroy themselves on the rock of offense on Jesus Christ. And yet, God is at work and Gentiles are coming to faith. Why? What's happening? Well, let's look first then at the surprise. The Gentiles, he says in verse 30, who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. You see, the gospel was turning things upside down. It was, it was upending all human expectations. Note just the irony in these words. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness. What were Gentiles pursuing? The Gentiles were pursuing every godless pagan thing imaginable. That's what the Gentiles were pursuing. They were living like the devil. They were known, defined by their idolatry. If you, if you ever get a chance to, to tour uh, that part of the world, Asia Minor, and, and see the temples and the, and the, um, the idols that, that have been were raised there, they, they are just grotesquely, sexually perverse, debauched, immoral, to the nth degree. Those are the Gentiles. They were not pursuing a law. They were not pursuing righteousness at all. And yet Paul says, they were made right with God. They attained righteousness. But the Jews, on the other hand, this, this incredible contrast, the Jews who were pursuing righteousness, who, who were trying to observe the law of God, seeking to live moral lives, 
They did not attain it. They were lost. They died in their sin. Now, that just if you're just a moral person, something feels off about that. That's not how it's supposed to work. Shouldn't it be that the people who are serious about God and seeking to live a good life, shouldn't they be the ones sort of at the front of the line when it comes to being saved? And that the people who could care less about God, who don't give a wit about God or His law, that they should be sort of at the back of the line? But that is exactly contrary to what is happening. The pagans are at the front of the line. The moral people, the Jews, are way at the back of the line. It's a profoundly unexpected thing. And it's not that the Jews were faking it. Paul wants us to know here that they really were serious about God and His law. Paul could use himself as a prime example. He'll talk about this in other places in his letters, that, that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee. Another man's, in other words, a man that was 100% committed to keeping every biblical command, every Mosaic law and precept, every rabbinical principle. If you taught it to him and this is the right thing to do, Paul would say, okay, that's what I'll do. He was absolutely committed to it. And yet he was lost as lost could be. And the same is true for the Jews as well. But they pursued righteousness. Paul says they did. In fact, he not only did that, he says in 10 verse 2, I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. The Jews were zealous for God. They believed in God. They were devoted to God. They prayed to God. If you looked over the religious landscape of that day, uh, the Jews were undeniably the good guys. They are not participating in the pagan, uh, the pagan practices of the Gentiles. They're devoted to God, uh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They memorized vast portions of the scriptures. They were committed to keeping the law, right? They know Psalm 1, and they, and they, they try to abide by it. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on that law he meditates day and night. That's what devout Jews are trying to do. Paul says, I can testify to it. So how, how could they be lost? What, what, what was the failure? And the answer is, of course, when it, when it came to righteousness before God, they made this one fatal mistake. They pursued righteousness through the law and not by faith. 9 verse 32, they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They treated it as though it were something to be gained, not received. They, they, they believed that the law could be a help to their righteousness. But, but actually, its purpose was to show them their sin, their need for grace. And Paul spent the first several chapters of his letter, right, explaining, trying to unpack the Jews' misunderstanding, their confusion here. As he, as he pointed out, it, it doesn't matter if you hear the law, if you have the law. Romans 12, 2 verse 13, it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is though who, those who obey the law who are righteous. You can hear it all day long. You can come to church 
right, seven times a week. That doesn't matter. It is those who obey the law, and that's the problem because, because no one obeys the law to the standard that God requires. Paul says that again, 3 verse 10, there's no one righteous, not even one. And so consequently, no one, he says, will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. No one, not a single individual. That's 3 verse 20. And so Israel fails, not because they're wantonly immoral people. No, no, they fail because they think that their morality is sufficient. That their law-keeping, their good intentions their religious efforts will be counted to them, credited to them as righteousness. Now again, that shouldn't surprise us. That's the human default position. It's, it's how everybody thinks natively, naturally left to themselves. Now I want to press this a little further just so we just feel the weight of this. You could just step back and say, okay, I grant, the Israelites aren't doing it exactly right. Granted. But at least they're trying, right? At least, at least they're trying to keep the law of God. Why don't, why don't they get credit for at least trying to do the right thing, trying to, to honor God through His law? The Gentiles were not even trying. They're known for their flagrant sin. Paul gives a list of Gentile sins in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. These are things that define the Gentile world. This is what he lists. Sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers. And then Paul says, and such were some of you. He's talking to the Gentile church. This is who they were. This is how they lived. And the common devout Jew could honestly say, but that wasn't me. That is, that's not the life I was living. I abhorred those things. I was devoted to God. I was doing my utmost to keep the law of God. Why don't I get some credit for that? It's a... It's a meaningful question. Why? What's the problem? Well, there's two problems that Paul mentions in the text. The first is that it's, it's, it's not how righteousness comes. It, it just can't work. It, it, it's like, it's like uh, trying to run your car without gas. It, it's made to run on gasoline. It, it can't work without gasoline. You can wish it would. You can pour water in the tank and give that a shot. Um, it's not going to work. It needs gasoline. But Paul points out that the righteousness that saves us does not ever come by human effort or work. It always must necessarily come by faith. So 9 verse 30, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is the righteousness that is by faith. Verse 32, the Jews did not find righteousness because they did not pursue it by faith. You see, they, they were just going at it entirely wrong. So Paul will say in chapter 10, verse 3, they were zealous for God, I, I, I promise you, 
but it wasn't a zeal according to knowledge. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God, in other words, the righteousness that comes by faith, they didn't, didn't see or know about that, so they sought to establish their own. They were pouring water in the gas tank. But it doesn't work that way. The only righteousness that can save you, that can, that can wash away your sin, the only righteousness that God accepts is the righteousness that God gives as a gift to be received by faith. We just read that earlier in the service. The righteousness from God, chapter 3, verse 20, has been manifested. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. That's the gasoline. That's how salvation works. You see, the, the gospel is this very simple but unexpected message that human efforts will never accomplish righteousness. But God sent his own son into this world to provide a righteousness we could never gain to give it as a free gift to those who will confess their sin and believe in his name. That's the righteousness that saves. And that's why Jesus is the only way to be saved. Have you ever had a conversation with someone who was complaining about the exclusive claims of Christianity that you have to believe in Jesus in order to be saved? And they may have argued you, why can't you be a good Hindu or a good Buddhist or even a good agnostic? You see, they're assuming that the person's goodness is sufficient, and that's exactly the wrong assumption. You see, the, the answer is Buddha can't atone for your sin. Buddha, Buddha can't robe you in his own perfect righteousness. He doesn't have any. Only Jesus can do this. Right? He is the only way to be saved specifically because Jesus is the only one who was sent from the Father from heaven. Only Jesus took on human flesh in order to bear human sin. Only Jesus did. Only Jesus perfectly obeyed the law of God in your place. Only Jesus died on the cross to suffer our damnation, and only Jesus was raised to life for our justification. Amen. Only Jesus. So we're not just arguing for a religion, we're arguing for God's way of salvation. And the only way to receive, you see, the righteousness of God is by faith in this Jesus. That's what the Jews didn't understand. That's what they refuse to accept. You see, this, this text just, just lays before us. There are two and only two options when it comes to finding righteousness before God. Option A, try to be good and do your best and go to hell. Option B, confess that you're not good. Your best will never be sufficient. It, and cast all of your hope on Jesus Christ and his righteousness and be received in heaven forever. Those are the two options. And so the, the first problem with, with the Jews' serious, well-meant, in some way, devotion to God and devotion to the law, the first problem is they're, just, they're, they're engaged in a project, project that can't work. 
But second problem Paul points out is that their project of self-salvation by their own righteousness is actually an act of rebellion against God. That's what he says in verse 3. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They said, we want nothing to do with your righteousness, God. That's what they were saying when they denied Jesus Christ. They rebelled against God's righteousness. It is, is exactly their morality which was their rebellion. Do you see that? And friends, there are many people, even in the church, who are doing the same thing, who are looking to their morality as their reason why God ought to bless them. Their morality uh, is, is their comfort. It's their, it's their confidence. I remember talking to a, a husband and a wife. They uh, were not members of Harvest Church. I just got a phone call, and um, they, knew, they knew someone who came to Harvest Church. The lady, they were both elderly. She was dying of heart disease. They, haven't been, they grew up in the CRC, hadn't been in church for 20 years. And so I went, and I... Um, had a good talk with her, presented the gospel to her. Um, it was clear she was terrified of dying. Um, after we talked, we came out of the house. The husband led me outside, and he rebuked me for suggesting that her good life was not sufficient to bring her to heaven. That's... That's just devastatingly sad. And that's what the Jews were doing. They're refusing to submit to God's righteousness. Now, why would you do that? Why would, why would anyone refuse to be saved by a free gift of God's grace through the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Why would you turn that down? What about that offer doesn't seem right to you? Well, the, re the fact is, every man left to himself and every woman left to herself will turn that offer down, instinctively. <laughs> every sinful fallen person, because of the bent of sin, would by nature rather be damned than be saved by a free gift. Uh, Robert Mounts in his commentary says, Sinners still reject the righteousness of God precisely because they cannot earn it. Their problem is that pride stands in the way of receiving God's gift. Deeply ingrained in people's hostility to divine grace is a proud and stubborn self-reliance that would rather be lost than be deprived of an occasion for boasting. They'd rather go to hell singing, I did it my way, than go to heaven singing, Jesus paid it all. That is how sick, how twisted the human heart actually is. And that's what was going on with the Jews. They didn't want to give up their pride. They were proud to be Jewish. They were proud to be Abram's descendants. They were proud to have the Mosaic law. And they'll be damned, literally, if they're going to act like they need grace the same way the Gentiles do. They're not going to give up their pride. The gospel is just too humbling. They won't do it. 
They'd rather be lost, and, and so they were. And that's what Paul means here when he says they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. Jesus is a rock of offense. The gospel is a rock of offense. The righteousness of God by faith in, the, in Christ, that's, that's a stumbling stone. And he, and, he, and he quotes here, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You see, the gospel is offensive to people not because it's untrue. It's offensive because it shatters human pride. You have to, you have to humble yourself. You've got to confess you can't save yourself. You've got to acknowledge that your, your efforts and your morality is it's just not, not going to be enough. It couldn't ever possibly be enough. And, and you will go to hell unless Jesus rescues you. And you cast everything you have on him. Well, how then can we be saved? Well, this is, again, by the grace of God, this is what God does in a human heart when he saves someone. He humbles that person. Uh, you know, we, uh, we often, as parents, we watch our kids grow, and they become teenagers, and they, uh, we see them, um, that proud, selfish, sinful heart begins to express itself in more scary ways. And kids start to say rebellious things that they never would have said when they were seven years old. And, and they, begin to, they, they start latching their hearts onto idols that, that we know are bad for them. And you're seeing real sin happen in the life of your, of your kids, and it can be really scary. And that's understandable. But a Christian parent should at the same time be saying, okay, this is where the good stuff happens. My pious little, right, six-year-old is finally starting to come to terms with the reality of her 13-year-old wicked heart. This is where the good stuff happens. This is where my child is going to meet Jesus as her necessary Savior in a new way. And it'll change the conversations you have with your child. Instead of just rebuking them or admonishing them or trying to scare them into obedience, you can sit down and say, honey, you see the heart that, that, that's been revealed here? It's the same heart mom and dad have. And this is who Jesus died for. Wicked people like you and like me. This is why the gospel matters. This is why we need Jesus. And you can lead your child, maybe for the first time, to an understanding that grace is for sinners like him, like her. And our kids don't have to walk around in shame with this secret burden of guilt, wondering what's wrong with them because nobody's ever shared the gospel with them. That's why this matters. God's work of grace is to expose our proud, wicked hearts. It's his first work of grace. So that we finally learn how to sing, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to thy fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Do you know that song from here 
Mounts again says, the only thing that God requires of people is that they not persist in trying to earn what they can only receive as a totally free gift. My question to you this morning is, have you received the grace of God as a totally free gift? Are you maybe somewhere in the middle? So believing it and yet actually doing your best to be moral and priding yourselves on your morality or at least or maybe despairing because of your lack of it. But you're just striving and striving to be good enough. Let me just close by asking this question. What would it look like in your life if, if we just received the gift of righteousness in Jesus Christ? What would it look like? Let me just offer you a few things. It would, it would look like joy and peace. It would look like joy. You don't have to keep running the rat race of the religious life, trying to be good enough. You can rejoice in the fact that Jesus Christ has become your life, and he's good enough. His righteousness is sufficient. It'll look like peace. Where you're not, you're not walking around worried that, that God is about to judge you because of your failure and your sin, but you can acknowledge freely and with great thankfulness that God has already judged your sin in Jesus Christ, and now there's actual peace between you and God your Father. It'll change maybe how you pray. There'll be less guilt, more gratitude. There'll be, there'll be guilt, there'll be acknowledging your sin, but there'll be receiving of grace. There'll be less fear, less worry, more hope, more confidence in God, more thankfulness as you just see all the good gifts that he pours out upon you. There'll be more of your heart resting on what is yet to come and and able to let the things of this world go. There'll be less judgment of other people. You won't be the self-righteous moral policeman noticing other people's failures You'll be able to recognize that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and God has loved us in Jesus Christ so that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, and you love Jesus and you love people. Is that what's happening in your life? If it's not, could I just encourage you to don't, don't move beyond this, right? Don't go past go. Just, just stop and ask yourself, where am I actually at with the gospel? With this very simple message that God has offered to me in Jesus Christ a righteousness that is perfect, complete, that I could never earn, a righteousness that will be the fountain of every good gift God will ever give me, all received freely as a gift by faith. And then ask the Lord, to transform your life along the lines of the gospel? This is the ultimate question. May we get it right. Amen. Amen. Well, Father in heaven, thank you for your unspeakable good gift in Jesus Christ, your son. He is our righteousness. He is our peace. Lord God, I... I just pray that you would press this on our heart, Lord. So many of us are still trying to be good enough, beating ourselves up in self-loathing when we fail, priding ourselves when we think we're accomplishing something. 
and we're not living in Christ, and we're not living in joy, we're not living in peace, we're not living in faith, we're not experiencing love. It's just hard every step of the way. And Jesus, we want to stop living like that. We confess our legalistic pride. It's wicked. It's rebellion against your salvation. And Jesus, I just pray that on this congregation this morning, your spirit would speak your word of peace that we could accept and receive the gospel in a new way and it changes how we think and how we feel and how we live as we begin to walk according to the truth of your word, the truth of the gospel. And Father, I pray there would be any person in this room this morning who has not come to terms with Jesus Christ to confess their sin and rest in him. Jesus, I pray that today you would draw them to yourself and give them life. And Jesus, as we live in a world full of people who are ignorant of your righteousness and seeking to establish their own, I pray that you would give us this sweet message of a free gift from a loving God for sinners in Jesus Christ. And we'd have the joy of seeing that gospel bear fruit in their salvation. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and confess together that our righteousness is not in ourselves, but in Jesus Christ alone.
God's people said, Receive the rest of the gospel. May the Lord now bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to be gracious, to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.